Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm. Let's start at Psalm 102, and we're going to get there in just a little bit. But we've been going over the last several weeks uh, over the feasts, uh, the seven appointed feasts uh, uh, that God appointed. Now, these are, keep this in mind, these are not, say, like for us, we have holidays where we can kind of choose to be part of them if we want to, you know, Thanksgiving, we can choose to be part of that. Christmas, we can choose to be part of that. Easter, Fourth uh, of July, they're, they're baked into our culture and into our nation, but we don't have to uh, join them because it's kind of like it's a choice we make. Well, the idea about these particular feasts is that God established these feasts. And so God's bringing in these seven feasts as what we're going to, we know, we, they're called feasts, but we, let's call them holidays because we can understand that we can connect better with what they are when we say holidays. Like we're coming up on Thanksgiving. It's a holiday. There's seven holidays, there's seven feasts that God ordained and said, I am requiring you, I am calling you to meet with me during these seven particular appointed feasts throughout the year. There's three spring feasts, there's one summer feast, and then there's three fall feasts, okay? Now, we've gone over the three spring feasts, and I'm going to give you a little quiz. I'm going to holler, I'm going to want you to just holler out, what is the first of the spring feast. The very first feast is what? That's correct. And Passover represents what God did in that Passover through Jesus. And by the way, all of these feasts were um, fulfilled in Christ. So the first one is Passover. And the Passover lamb, we know the story where the blood was put on the doorposts uh, of the houses. And then the death angel passed over those particular houses were the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb, the, the chosen lamb, where that blood was posted over, the, over that doorpost. The death angel passed over and didn't kill the firstborn of the males in that tenth of the last plagues of the ten plagues uh, that, that God poured out on, the, on, Is, on Egypt so that the people of Israel could be released from their captivity of 430 years. Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus became the, uh, that, that became a type, that was a type, but Jesus actually fulfilled it when he actually died for our sins as the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And he actually did it on the day of Passover. 365 days in a year, could have been any of those days, he fulfilled it on that day. The second feast was what? Unleavened bread. And that represents, we would know it as no yeast no yeast bread, right? It was just flat bread, like crackers, okay? And unleavened bread was the feast where they were, God said, I need you to, don't put any yeast in that bread because you're getting ready to leave quickly. It's a hasty sort of preparation of bread. And that represented uh, them, what happened was they, they left with that, with the bread kind of dough tied up in a satchel along with everything else. And they got quickly out of Egypt after that last plague, uh, the, the, uh, the Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. All the death that was going on in that, in that area and, and the Israelites left. Not only did they leave quickly, it represents the quickness of God's redemption. It represents the, compl the completeness of God's rescue and redemption. But it also represents the, uh, it's a reminder of that uh, slavery sin that we were in. It's a reminder that we need to be careful not to get back into that bondage of slavery. See, Jesus fulfilled that feast on the day of unleavened bread because Passover the next day is unleavened bread. And it's a week long, remember, so, but it started on that next day, which is on a, um, on a, on a uh, Sabbath day. 
and it lasted for a week. And so Jesus actually was buried, uh, put in the tomb, I should say. He was put in the tomb on the day of unleavened bread. He died on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. So he fulfilled that, actually, on the very day of that. And that represents what Jesus has done for us because Jesus took upon himself uh, the, the, the idea that he, he rescued us from that sin, from that slavery of sin, like he did with the nation of, of, of Israel out of Egypt. And he took our sin upon himself. He took our curse upon himself. And there's one more little caveat there I thought was so interesting is when the, the, the nation of Israel, when the people left out of Egypt, they not only left with their freedom, but they left with gold and silver and all kinds of blessings. And I feel like that's so, so pertinent to where we are because when we are washed clean of our sins, we're not just free from slavery, from the slavery of sin, but we also get all the blessings of heaven on top of that. All the riches of heaven belong to us. All the treasures of heaven belong to us. What do you need today from the Lord? Do you need his peace? See, because when we go to that, I think we need to be careful. When we go to this, oh man, I need some money. Okay, well, good. But that's not all that there is to it. It's, actually, this shouldn't be the first thing that we go to, you know? It should be like, Lord, I need your peace. I need your healing. I need your strength. I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. I need your blessings. I need, I need whatever's going on in heaven right now to come to this earth and be on me, be in me, function through me, guide me, help me. All the riches of heaven are at our disposal because he's rescued us from sin, but he's also given us access to everything that is of him. Isn't that good to know? Oh, thank God for that. The third feast that we looked at last week was the feast of what? First fruits. The feast of first fruits. Jesus actually fulfilled that on the day of first fruits because first fruits comes on the, on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. On that Saturday, first fruits was on that Sunday. What happened on that Sunday? We celebrated. It's a big day in our nation. What happened? Jesus rose again. And first fruits, the idea of the celebration of first fruits was that the priest would wave the barley sheaf before the Lord in the temple and say, this is the first of what we're believing is many more blessings of provision throughout the growing season, throughout the harvest time, throughout the growing months of the year. And when you see what that, how that connects with what Jesus has done, Jesus was the first fruits. In fact, there's so many scriptures in the New Testament. We heard them all last week about how Jesus was the first fruits, that we're the first fruits, that all these, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, all these first fruits that are tucked away in these scriptures in the New Testament. And if you've ever read these scriptures before, I hope that it brought new light to you last week when you read that. Thought, oh, that's what that means. Because see, the, the author of those, of those books was connecting the, 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 one of the feasts, the feast of first fruits to Christ, to the Holy Spirit, to us. And so Jesus became... What happened? He rose again right on that day. He became the first of the resurrection of all of mankind. Where in Adam, everyone, there was death. Through Christ, everyone, there's life. And so Jesus became that first. He conquered death and he conquered hell. And he rose again from the dead. And Jesus today, it's been documented well over well over 500 people saw him alive. We heard that last week when he was walking the earth, talked with him, uh, uh, hugged him, uh, 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 communed with him, fellowshiped with him. 
So one of those people should have showed up and said, well, this is a bunch of, this, this is not true. They're making this thing up. But no one did. All 500 plus of them vouched that he was alive, saw him, and they saw him ascend to heaven. He said, the way that I'm going is the way I'm coming down, and one day I'm coming back. And that first fruits of what happened is going to happen to all of you as you place your faith in me. He became the first fruit of many that will experience the same thing that he did because our bodies may die, but we're going to live forever in a glorified body that will never die. And he became the first fruits of that. Isn't that good to know? All of those who place their faith in Jesus can experience that. I'm so thankful that God is faithful. Amen? I'm thankful for his provision. I'm thankful for his protection. Amen? I'm thankful for his guidance. I'm thankful for his goodness. Not just in generations past that we read about. Not just from those that, uh, that we've heard in our lifetime. But he's not just faithful as a way of, uh, of just being because that faithfulness is not what he does. Faithfulness is who he is. Goodness is not what he does. Goodness is who he is. All of those things are not things that he does. It's who he is. He can't help but be that because that's who he is. And not only is it a reminder of his goodness in the past, it's also a way of reminding us that he is good, that he is faithful. That he is all of these things that we read in the past. He is that for us today. And not only will he be that for us today, but he will continue to be that for us in the future. Because you see, God never changes. The Bible says in Psalm 102, verse 27. You, O Lord, remain the same. And your years will never end. And then we see in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. There's no shadow of turning with him. I'm so thankful. And Paul, you touched on this a little bit in our time where we're kind of things are changing. Kind of like there's chaos and there's uncertainty and there's change in the world. And it's not good what's going on. We can sense that in our spirits. And at least, you know, in that part, we say, man, this is not good. But then our spirits also become alive when we become excited because we realize that the, the prophecy is being fulfilled and Jesus is coming back as a result of it. But in the midst of everything that's going on, God never changes. In the midst of everything that's changing, God is dependable. God is faithful and God is good. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful for that. So there's so many layers and there's so many facets in God's word as you read it. And you can just take it at face value. You can get kind of one angle, one approach to God's word if you kind of read across the surface of it. But if you start peeling back the layers of God's word, Don, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who take the scripture, you start really getting into it and letting it just study. I mean, don't just pause and meditate and drill down and get deeper into that particular uh, passage, into that particular story. And let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to you these things. There's so many multifaceted surfaces, just like you would hold up a diamond to the light. If you just turn it just a little bit, just a touch, you're going to see a whole different thing about that diamond than you would as you were holding it this particular way. If you tweak it, you're going to see another sort of thing about it. And we can see how the Holy Spirit reveals to us in God's word, intricate and eternal truths that he's given us that go beyond the surface story into some depths as you study and meditate on God's word. You know, we can take God's precious word, that Bible that you're holding in your hand, and you can study it faithfully for millions of years. 
and you can be diligent in studying it. And you still would not get everything out of it that he's put in there for us to enjoy and to learn about his goodness, about his character, about his faithfulness, and about all that he, all that he is. I, I believe that's why we're going to, part of why we're going to need eternity in heaven, I guess. I don't know. But I believe that we're going to be learning constantly forevermore as more of his goodness and more of his glory is realized in our lives uh, as we spend eternity with him in glory. Because I got to say it again, God is just so very good. He's just so good. So having said that, uh, we know that these feasts are appointed by God to his people. Uh, we also know that they were prophetic symbols. They were types of Jesus Christ and all his redemptive work for all of mankind. And by the way, we're in this giant arc in history. If Adam and Eve in the garden was the beginning of the ark, it was the history. The be- we read Genesis 1.1. That was the beginning of man's history. The creation of man. And we know what happened in the garden where Satan deceived and sin entered into Adam and Eve. There's a giant arc that goes throughout the course of history. Thousands of years. By the way, not millions of years. Thousands of years. Okay? Evolution would say millions. Don't believe them thousands of years to the point where we are right now and we are at the other end of that arc. We are just before that arc ending. We are just before that arc being completed because I believe, and I believe most of you as well too, that Jesus Christ is coming back any moment. We see prophecies being fulfilled every day and they're aligning with God's prophetic words for us, not as a way to make us afraid, but as a way to encourage us to hang in there, to hold on, to not give up because Jesus is still in control. He is still in charge. All of these seven feasts are not just feasts that God appointed for the children of Israel to remind them of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his protection and his rescue and his provision over the years. But it's also a pattern and a story of Jesus' redemptive work in mankind in that giant ark. And that's the beautiful thing that I'm talking about as far as the multifaceted things of God's work. If we look at it at face value, they're just feasts that Israel celebrates. But if we pull back and say, wait a minute, this is also a prophetic fulfillment of Christ's redeeming work from Genesis to Revelation. And we are right there, right before the trumpet sounds. And in fact, we're going to look at that next week so don't miss it if we make it to next week (laughs) so jesus fulfilled the first three feasts on the very day passover unleavened bread first fruits on the very day the same goes with the fourth feast that we're going to look at today it's known to the jews as shavuot shavuot say that with me shavuot 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 Hard to say. It's got a U before an O. That doesn't look right for us. It looks like it's misspelled, but it's Shavuot. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But we know it as what? Pentecost. Oh, we're Pentecostals. Of course it's known as Pentecost. And we'll find out why it's known as Pentecost here in just a few minutes. Now, you can find this feast along with the rest of them, and I'll let you read it in your own time in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, there's a practical, every week we try to look at the practi- three, different, uh, six, uh, three different areas of why these feasts are significant. The first one 
is practical. Now, let's talk about what they did actually, what, the, what, he, what, he, what he asked the Jews, what he mandated his people to do in this fourth feast, the Feast of, of Pentecost or, or weeks. God gave, it was really actually a very simple kind of festival. He gave clear, uh, clear instructions as to how this feast was to be observed. Now, the reason it's called the Feast of Weeks is because in God's instruction, he asked the people to count seven weeks, seven weeks from the day of Passover, the day of Passover being the day before um, um, unleavened bread and was the, uh, the day before the Sabbath, okay? So it was like the sixth day of the week for them. So keep that in mind. You got to do a little uh, math here in just a little bit. Seven weeks from the day after Passover, I'm sorry, I, did, I said that wrong, it's the day after Passover, so it would be on that, Sunday, on that Saturday, the first day of the week, the Sabbath, and then to proclaim a, a sacred assembly where the priest was to, then to present two loaves of wheat bread, rather than barley, he would present two loaves of wheat bread that would actually have yeast in it, which I found was interesting, along with seven lambs, two rams, and one bull as burnt offerings to God. Now, the reason that it's known as Pentecost, instead of is because Shav, Shavuot uh, means weeks. Shavuot means weeks. And since there are 50 days from Passover or 49 from Sabbath after the Passover, so they, they counted as 50 days because uh, Shavuot or Pente Pentecost is the day after the 49th day. So it's 50 days. You get mixed up here? I'm, it's confusing because there's 49 and there's 50 going on here. But it's 49 days and it's the day after Shavuot. Shavuot. Okay, so since, since Shavuot means weeks, and since there's 50 days from Passover, and since the Greek language is so, per, per, so pervasive in Jesus' day, the people called it Pentecost because, uh, because weeks in Greek means, I'm sorry, 50 in Greek means Pentecost. The word 50 in Greek means Pentecost. And so the Greek language is so pervasive in that day that they just turned it into, the, they just called it Pentecost. So here's the thing. If the Greeks had never influenced the Jewish culture with their language, instead of us being called Pentecostals, we might be called Shavuoters or Shavuites. So all I can say is I'm really glad that the Greeks kind of got in there because Pentecost is just so much easier to say. Just, it just flows better, doesn't it? Uh, I'm a Shavuoter. Hallelujah. This feels weird. Um, so, so this is the second of three pilgrimage feasts. The first one was what? Passover, right? They had to go. And then Pentecost was another pilgrimage feast. And finally, the third one is what? Tabernacles. Yeah. So, and we actually saw that a several weeks, a couple of months, month and a half or so ago when we did the Feast of Tabernacles here. And we're going to... Um, that's the seventh of the feast. So the first one, the middle one, and the third, or the, the last one were all pilgrimage feasts. It means that everyone had to come from their towns and come to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate these particular feasts. They couldn't just celebrate it where they were. They had to go to, their, they had to, go to Jerusalem. So again, it was one of those things where you had to pull up stakes, pack a bag, kind of make plans and all that sort of thing. Uh, Pentecost uh, was right in the middle of the, uh, of the summer, actually right at the beginning of the summer. So 50 days after the first one, first fruits, the spring feast was first fruits, and they honored God with the first barley harvest. The summer feast was Pentecost, and they honored God with wheat harvest. Now, I like wheat better than barley. I think I'd be a little more happy with the, with the wheat bread rather than a barley bread. But uh, anyway, that's what they celebrated. I guess it took a little longer for the wheat to come in. Uh, but that's what, they, that's what they were celebrating on Pentecost. Now, this feast 
officially marks the beginning of the summer harvest, and it was the only summer feast. So I want you to kind of get some time frames in mind here because we're going to start unpacking this, but I want to give you kind of trying to set up kind of a foundation that we can build on. There was no work, God said, to be done on that day, and there was no grain that was to be used from that particular harvest until the priest honored and thanked God for his faithful provision of the summer harvest. And this feast was another opportunity for the people of God to be reminded that God owns everything, like we heard last week, and that everything comes from his hand. Now, this feast has morphed over the centuries in, in reality with the Jews into something that's entirely different than the simple thing that God had originally intended. Simply, priest, I want you to take this, these barley loaves, or these wheat loaves, and wave them before the Lord, and then sacrifice these animals, and then that's it, and just rest on that day. But they have turned this thing around because after uh, around 140 AD, the Jewish Sanhedrin, decided to focus their celebration on the giving of the Mosaic Law. I mean, best intentions here. They veered away from the simple wave offering of the wheat and sacrifices to honoring the Mosaic Law. And then they added readings from the Book of Ruth. And then they added eating some food items made from dairy products. And then they enjoyed celebratory meals together. And they decorated their homes with flowers and greenery. And they stayed up all night to read the Torah and the reading of some prescribed, of some prescribed poems. So you think about that, that, that has nothing to do with what we just read. God said, just wave, the, bar, wave the, the wheat loaves before and sacrifice these animals and don't work that day. And they, now they're eating dairy products and the cheesecake and, you know, decorating their homes. They're having a good time, you know. It nothing to do with waving any sort of nothing. They're just having a party. Kind of sounds like what we've done with Easter and Christmas in this nation, doesn't it? When you think about it. Uh, what once was a celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter and his birth at Christmas has now been successfully morphed and um, kidnapped by the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. I, I think we ought to throw them in jail. I personally think that they deserve to be put in jail, matched in the Easter Bunny behind bars right now. Um, but by the way, just I got to say, and you guys know this, but I'm, for those who may be watching, uh, Easter has nothing to do with the Easter Bunny, nothing. Easter has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Christmas has nothing to do with Santa Claus. It has everything to do with the birth of Christ, who then brought in the plan of salvation as a result of it. I, 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 you know, Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, I mean, God bless them, you know. But listen, on Christmas, you guys, please make some time and sing happy birthday to Jesus, you know. Honor him on Christmas. Don't just scrub him out of the equation. I mean, if you're going to do Santa Claus, do Santa Claus. But, I mean, let's just say happy birthday, Jesus. It's his birthday. Think about it. We get all the gifts, too. It just blows my mind what we've done. You know, the Jews have their own reasons for celebrating Pentecost. But the church, we recognize it as something entirely different. So let's look now at the prophetic significance of the feast, now that we know what uh, the practical significance was. Now, Jesus, as we learned last week, told the disciples in Acts 1-8 to remain in Jerusalem until he sends his Holy Spirit. Don't leave from this place until I send my spirit. And then so they did, and then so he did. And we see what happened in Acts chapter 2, one of our favorite Pentecostal passages. We hear this just about every Pentecost Sunday. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven, before their eyes, as they were all gathered in the upper room, 10 days later, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, records the birth of the church of who we are today in the most unbelievable and marvelous event 
I would sure have loved to have been there. Read with me. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly the house where they were sitting was filled. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, that's a very familiar passage to many in the church. And we know that that's the day that the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit that Christ promised, fell on those 120 or so in the upper room. And they became empowered by the Spirit to go and catapult the church into where it is today. Actually, the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, said this was going to happen. It was prophesied. It says, and afterward, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See, in the Old Testament, the spirit of God was upon prophets and kings and certain people for certain assignments. It was not like it is now back then. Back then, the Holy Spirit was assigned to particular people for particular assignments. It wasn't, the Holy Spirit was not filling everybody. But in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2 is the pivot point. That that I just read is where Joel said afterwards, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all people. What he means by that was right now you're used to being poured out in certain individuals, prophets and kings and others, priests, for certain assignments and for certain reasons. But in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all people. It's going to be available to all people. You all will be priests and prophets and kings for my glory. Acts chapter 2, if you continue reading that chapter, records a sermon preached by Peter who had denied Christ three times just, just days before, just weeks before. Had denied Christ. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the boldness of the Holy Spirit, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, with the words of the Holy Spirit, preached a message and thousands came to know Jesus that day and the church was birthed. So I want to connect a couple of things here real quick in this story. First, it says that in Acts chapter 2 that people once filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in various languages, in unknown tongues to them. And they were declaring God's goodness into those that were listening. Now, the amazing thing is that these people were speaking fluently in the languages of those that were gathered that day so that those hearing could understand. They were so... Why were there so, let me ask you this. Why were there so many people with so many different languages in Jerusalem that day? Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. You see, they were acquired as a pilgrimage to come from different parts of the known world. And so these people that were Jewish bloodline, that were still functioning and honoring and serving God in those feasts. And they lived in, I don't know, Ethiopia. They lived in, I don't know, other places where they spoke different languages. They didn't speak Hebrew. They had grown up and morphed into and learned the language of their country that they lived in, but they were still Jewish and they're still honoring those feasts and they were still honoring the pilgrimage to go. And so there they were in Jerusalem that day and God knew that in order to get the gospel out that he would have to not just speak it in their language of, 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 of the people in Jerusalem over that country, 
But we need to make sure to get all these people speaking it out in these different languages, these different tongues, so that they would get saved. And think about what happened. All these people got saved. They took the gospel back to where they were. I mean, talk about strategy. I mean, it's just beautiful what the Holy Spirit does. And so here's the Holy Spirit speaking through all these people. The good news and the greatness of God and his goodness and the wonders to them. That's what the Holy Spirit was speaking. It says so in Acts chapter 2. They were proclaiming God's goodness and wonders to them in their primary native tongue. And then once they were gathered, Peter boldly spoke out under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and finished the job. It got their attention and then Peter finished the, or the Holy Spirit finished the work through Peter. So the Holy Spirit, the point I want to make is this. The Holy Spirit is very strategic. Write that down. The Holy Spirit is very strategic. He knows exactly what he's doing because the Holy Spirit is laser focused on making sure that the gospel is proclaimed. That's his primary job assignment, the Holy Spirit, which by the way, he's living in us. Kind of a little advertisement for we're getting ready to go with this. But if the Holy Spirit is in us and his primary job is to preach the gospel, I'll stop right there. Here's the second thing. Second point that I want to kind of make sure that we connect some dots here. The Feast of Weeks which is known as Pentecost for us, was an act of thanks and recognition that God owns everything and everything comes from him. So their act of honoring God with the first of the wheat harvest was a way of thanking him for the continued increase for the rest of the harvest season. You hear me? So they were in the wheat harvest and they were saying, Lord, we trust you that this, this bread is not all we're going to get. We believe that you're going to continue to provide for us in the growing season. All that we need during the growing season, to not only sustain us here, but to put it back during the non-growing seasons, right? But during the growing season, this is what we're believing you for. So as we see the 120 gathered in the upper room, let's do a little math here. You got 120 in the upper room. And then it, it expanded in Acts chapter 2 to over 3,000 that day when Peter preached the, the good news. And then thousands more were added as they went out and dispersed the gospel. And then hundreds of thousands were added over the centuries, and then millions were added over the centuries. And to where we are today, as you look around and you hear some statistics, that there's potentially billions that have made a decision for Jesus Christ over the centuries. But it started with Jesus, his 12, the 120, the thousands, and then millions, and then here we are today. Because the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. And so when we look at that promise of the harvest and the natural for the wheat harvest, in that Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and we're saying, God, on the day of Pentecost, while people were, while the priest was waving the loaves of bread and sacrificing those animals, and saying, God, we're trusting you for more. Because you own everything, and everything comes from you. Spiritually speaking, prophetically speaking, Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll take that concept. How about this? How about 120? How about 3,000? How about millions? How about billions? And we as a church need to get into this place of saying, all right, Lord, as you took it on the day of Pentecost and, and you showed yourself to be faithful to expand the church from 120 to thousands to millions and now to billions, we're believing you, Lord God, to continue in that process because what you did in that harvest was simply a down payment, a deposit. What you did in the upper room, what you did on that day was simply a deposit of what we know and we've actually seen played out of a continued harvest of souls. It's not a harvest of wheat we're looking for today, folks. We're looking for a harvest of souls. And that's the thing. We're still in that summer season, aren't we? As far as prophetically speaking, those fall feasts have not happened yet. Prophetically, have they? 
The spring feast have taken place. We're now in the summer feast. We're in the growing season. We're in the harvest season. And the harvest continues. Too many in the church, I believe, treats the harvest as one and done. It's somebody else's job. It's taken care of. There's no more harvest to be, to be gotten. But John 4.35 says, don't you have a saying that it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe unto harvest. How many know someone that doesn't know Jesus? Yeah? How many sees people on TV and the news articles and stuff like that? They need Jesus. I mean, even if it's just one more person, there's still a harvest out there, right? And the harvest is plenteous, the Bible says, but the laborers are few. But the laborers are sufficient if we'll just get up and do our part. The church was birthed, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, congregation. The church was birthed to preach the gospel. The church was birthed to preach the gospel. We are here today and we exist as a church to preach the gospel. We are here to equip the saints. I am here to equip you to go out and tell others about Jesus. Did you know that? It's not just my job. I'm at one time the pastor to equip. I'm at the other time someone to go out to tell, tell someone about Jesus. But my job as your pastor is to equip you to go out and preach the gospel. That's my job. And so that's what I'm doing today. I'm encouraging you. I'm inspiring you. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to motivate you. I'm trying to get some clarity to your heart and to your eyes and to your vision and purpose. I exist. I live today to preach the gospel, to share the good news, to do what they did in the book of Acts and what they've done over the centuries. It's now my turn in my generation to those around me. I am to preach the gospel. That's it. Not to be a preacher behind a pulpit, but in my life, in my choices, in, 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 in how I talk and how I walk. I'm to preach the gospel. I'm to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm to be his representative. That's my job. I'm afraid we've made it so many other things over the centuries. But Jesus has for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order that we may effectively and boldly share Jesus with others. Jesus said, I'm going to fill you with my spirit so that you can be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He could have said anything, but he says, I need to fill you with my spirit to be my witnesses. Not to have a good time and get Holy Ghost good bumps and dance around the church and, you know, have potlucks. And I mean, all that's fine. But the primary focus, the thrust is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we doing with that? The prophetic significance of Pentecost is just that. When the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would be just for prophets and priests and kings for specific purposes, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is for everyone. He's here to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Say the word all with me. All flesh. That's you and me. Say all flesh. Say that's me. That's right. The Holy Spirit is here to pour out His Spirit upon you and in you to empower you to proclaim what? The gospel. Two or three of you got it. To proclaim what? The gospel. We exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to this personal significance of this feast for us today. It's not just something that the priest did waving some wheat bread once a year. Personally for me today in 2021 and for you today, this is what this should mean to us. 
His spirit today is available to all of us. His spirit is in all of us who've accepted Jesus as our savior. If you have Jesus in your heart today, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he's actually the spirit of Christ. And his spirit will empower you for service and proclamation of his gospel as we yield to him. Write that word down, yield. This is the key today to where we're going with this. Yielding to the Holy Spirit is hard. Our flesh does not want to yield to the Holy Spirit. Our flesh doesn't want to yield to the Holy Spirit at all. There's that battle, isn't there? The author of Romans talked about this struggle between the flesh and the spirit pretty thoroughly in Romans chapter 7. And he encapsulates this struggle in this one verse in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. See if you don't relate to this. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. How many is there? Is it just me? Yeah. How about every day? Huh? Right? Yeah, of course. It's all that struggle. It's that the flesh says, do this. And the spirit says, no, 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 do this. It's kind of like that old thing where you got the little devil here and the little angel here, you know? It's not the, it's got the same sort of idea. They kind of whisper in your ears. And what are you going to do? Paul, though, gives us a prescription for the sickness that we all struggle with. This is a sickness. And how many is glad for this prescription, this antidote? It's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It says this. So I say, walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, right? And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. We know that that's a battle that all of us face. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you're led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law of the flesh. So again, yield to the Spirit. Say that with me. Yield to the Spirit. Say it again. Yield to the Spirit. There's the battle line that was just drawn right there for all of our lives. And it's the choices that we make. It's how we decide to deal with that. The two little voices, the two little guys sitting on our shoulder as to whether we're going to be able to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, be a representative of Christ, let the Holy Spirit do in us and through us what he wants to do, or live in our own, for our own desires and our own, our own goals. Now, this is, I know that this scripture that I just read is easier said than done. Yield to the Spirit, that's easier said than done, I get it. But let me ask you this, aren't the hard things to do in life usually the best things for us? I'll say that again. It, it, the hard things to do in lives are usually the best things for us. Not only such things as diets and exercise or maybe disciplined money management, but also saying no to harmful things. Saying no to harmful relationships when we need to. Walking away from temptations when we need to. Biting our tongue when we need to. Walking in love and forgiveness all the time. Walking in purity and holiness. Not mimicking the world, but exemplifying God. All of those things are hard things to do. But they're the best things to do. Those things that I just listed, 
it battles our flesh and our spirit battles together. And the Bible is telling us that if we'll yield to the spirit, then we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But we'll honor the Lord and walk in greater Christ-likeness in all that we say and all that we do and all that we think as we yield to the spirit. Say that with me again. Yield to the spirit. That's the battle line. This should be all of our goals. This should be all of our heart's desires. But let's just take this one step further if we can today. Because as believers in Christ, as his ambassadors and representatives to a lost and dying world, we actually have an obligation to walk by the Spirit. Did you know that? I think too often we make it a choice, but really we're obliged to. We're obligated to. It should not be an option for us, church. We should make it a requirement for our lives, each of us individually. We ought to require, I will bless the Lord. I will serve the Lord. I will die to myself today and I will live for Christ. It's an obligation. It's not, we, may, we, we call it a choice and it kind of is, but folks, can we just go down a little bit deeper to this thing this morning and say, wait a minute, it, I'm actually obliged to because of what Christ has done for me. I choose to serve Christ every day. I'm obliged to. I'm obliged to. I owe him that. We've given our lives to Jesus. The Bible says, therefore, we no longer live. But Jesus now lives his spirit, his, the spirit of Christ, now lives in us and lives through us as we continually yield to him our all. Say that with me again. Yield to the spirit. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I am no longer alive. What you're looking at me today, this is the shell of Brian Keith, the body of Brian Keith. But I am dead. At least I should be. And Christ, his spirit, his life, his wisdom, his all is in me, living through me. That should be all of our goal. I'm obliged to do that. That's what I owe him. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then the author of Romans sums it up this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. There's the word. It's not a choice. It's not an option. It's an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. That was before we received Jesus, that we were obliged to the flesh, wasn't it? We just lived to fulfill our flesh, didn't we, guys and girls? Right? But in Christ, we now have an obligation not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, that you will live. Here it is. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Let's be led by the Spirit as we are yielding to the Spirit and be obliged to serving this way, not as an option, right, but as I'm a mandate. Record we right mandate now, ourselves, what, what, I will I... serve the Lord. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Too many Christians think today that they can have their cake and eat it too. We think that we can serve Jesus and still live in sin and folly and fleshliness. The Holy Spirit can help us today, though, to not be hypocritical and conflicted as we yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as we close today, I want us to try something. And it's probably going to be a little bit easier for you if you stand up. I'm not going to make you walk around or do jumping jacks, but you need to... Get your diaphragm open. So would you stand with me this morning? Because I want to do something called spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing. And so you got to get, got to get all that kind of, plus you need to, some of you kind of need to stir yourself from the cobwebs. Wake up. Get up. Everybody wake up. 
You guys are doing good this morning. Now, we know that physical breathing provides oxygen as we inhale, and that's necessary for producing energy, right? We got to have that oxygen to keep us going. It also releases carbon dioxide, doesn't it? In with the good stuff, out with the bad stuff. And carbon dioxide actually is a lethal gas if it's inhaled in large quantities. You don't want to get around it. Spiritual breathing is kind of like that. We're going to exhale by confessing our sins to God and claiming forgiveness for our sins. And then we're going to inhale by breathing in the Holy Spirit and yielding, to, yielding full control to Him. How does that sound? I know I need that. How about you? Am I the only one today? Okay, good. Just a few more. You know, and, and, and you know, while we really don't think about physical breathing, I mean, we're just sitting here breathing in and out. I don't think you consciously were thinking, I got to go breathe in now. I got to exhale. I got to inhale. You just do it as kind of a natural thing, don't you? But we do need to consciously choose to spiritually breathe. We need to consciously choose by daily confessing our sins to God. That exhaling is a daily act of, I exhale to you. All that stuff, all that flesh that I've allowed to get in me, all that poison. And then I'm going to inhale your Holy Spirit today. One more time, which means I'm going to yield to the Holy Spirit in every area of my life. That's a daily battle. I get it. And nobody in this place, none of us will be able to perfect it. But that should also be a cop out that we don't move in that direction, right? and continually die to ourselves more and more every day. Oh, that's what I want, how about you? I mean, I'm not the same today as I was last week or last year or 10 years ago or when I was a young person. But if I had had that cop out when I was a teenager, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm gonna let the Lord teach me. And you know, I'm gonna grow to be like Him and I'm gonna exhale that junk and inhale all that He is. So let's do a spiritual breathing right now. I want you to, right now, I want you to just, I know you've probably already taken a breath, so I want you to exhale right now, just exhale. Lord, we confess our sins to you. Come on, exhale again. Lord, we give it to you. We just exhale our sins. Just right now, confess your sins to the Lord. Would you just right now, all of you, exhale spiritually all that stuff. Confess your sins, the Bible says. Confess them. Breathe out all that poison of sin right now. Breathe it out in your own way. Lord Jesus, right now, we confess our sins to you. Forgive us of our thoughts, of our words of our actions, of our stewardship, of our time and talent and treasure, of the choices that we've made. Forgive us, Lord God, for the things that we've done that are conflicting and contrary to what your word says. We are walking in known sin, and we repent of that today. Forgive us. We exhale that poisonous stuff, that sin, because we know that it's going to corrupt us. It's going to kill us. It's toxic to us. We don't want it. We die to ourselves today, Lord. We confess our sins. And now, Lord, we, we inhale your spirit. We inhale the purity of your spirit, the life of your spirit, the, the, the strength of your spirit, the wisdom of your spirit, the holiness of your spirit, the purity, the, the goodness of your spirit, the joy of your spirit, the peace of your spirit. We inhale those things, the boldness of your spirit, Lord God. Oh, we need you, God, Lord God. Let, 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 the, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, help us to lean in, to press in, to be more like you every day, to exhale that junk, that sin, and to inhale and yield to the spirit of Christ that is already in us. Take full control as we sang this morning. Take full control. I surrender. I surrender all to you. We surrender all to you. 
Romans chapter 6, Lord, your word says in verse 19, just as we were used to offering ourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now you're calling us to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness that leads to holiness. Your word says that when we were slaves to sin, that we were free from the control of righteousness. But the benefit that we reaped at that time are the things that we're ashamed of now. Those things resulted in death. But now, Lord, your word says that we've been set free from sin. We have become slaves to you, O oh God. And the benefit that we get to reap is that of holiness. And that results in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you today for this exercise that all of us can do every day of our lives as we leave this place. I pray, God, that you'd help us to do some spiritual breathing every day. Exhale the sinful poison junk that's killing us. And inhale the spirit that brings us holiness and life as we yield more and more to you, Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about. That's what it is. It's the first fruits of us yielding to you so that we can tell others about you and then they can yield to you. They can exhale the stuff and then inhale the good stuff. Lord, let us be truly Pentecostal. That's not running the aisles, swinging from chandeliers today. It's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in all that we say and do and think, with our lives, with our choices, with everything about us, let us be representatives and ambassadors of you, Lord Jesus. Call us. Open our eyes to see the harvest that is ripe. And Father, help us to tell someone about Jesus this week. Because that's why we exist. Have a relationship, restore a relationship back to you. You've done that. Now, let's look to the harvest field. And let's tell someone about you this week that desperately needs you. We love you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.